Well, dear congregation, if you turn now, please, to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. This morning, we would like to consider the birth of Samson, the judge, the birth of Samson. Well, I'm sure we all know, children, you as well, we all know this story of Samson. We think of Samson, we, we think of someone who was very strong, someone who killed a lion with his own hands, someone who, who killed a thousand Philistine soldiers with the jawbone of a donkey, someone who carried the heavy gates of Gaza uh, some 15 or so miles. Certainly, Samson is a strong and a mighty deliverer for the people of God. But, but the Bible in Hebrews 11 emphasizes that Samson, Samson was a man of faith. The time would fail us, the writer says, to speak of Gideon, of Jephthah, of Samson. Uh, and speaks there, thereby of Samson as a man of faith. It's important to remember that often you read commentaries or books that seem only to highlight the sin of Samson, and no question there was sin in his life, but the, the Bible emphasizes the faith of Samson. He was a man of faith, and most important of all, Samson is a type or a picture of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who was uh, ordained, exalted, strong to save. Now, this, this morning, we'd like to consider the, the birth of Samson, and we see here the Lord appearing to deliver His people. Now, we have four points. First of all, we want to see that these are worrying times, difficult and worrying times. Secondly, we want to see the birth of this warrior child. Thirdly, the wise parents. And lastly, the wonderful angel. But first of all, these are worrying times. We're in the book and we're in the time of the judges. And this this is the this is towards the end of the time of the judges. So this is around the time of other people like Eli and Samuel. And you, you know the history that, that you know, Moses is the one who takes the people of Israel out of Egypt. And for 40 years, they're in the wilderness. And then Joshua brings the people into the land and they have these battles against Jericho, against Ai and and, and that brings you into this period or this time of the judges that is another three to four hundred years before Saul and David and the kings. So we're in this time of the judges. And you, you, might, you might then ask, well, why would this be the worrying time? You know, surely the worrying time was when you were in the wilderness or when you were in Egypt. But now you're in the land of promise. You're in the land that flows with milk and honey. Why would you describe this as 
the worrying time. Well, the Bible tells us, and the book of Deuteronomy in particular tells us, of the Lord saying to His people, if, if you will remember Me, if you will keep My laws, if you will do what I say, then all the blessings of this book and all the blessings of this land of promise will be yours. But if you forget, if you turn away and you begin to look at what the heathen, the Canaanites are doing in the land of promise, and, and you begin to incorporate what they're doing uh, into your lives and into your worship, then, then all the curses that, that are in this book will come upon you, the drought, the famine, the sword, and the enemy. And that's, that's exactly what you find uh, in the book of Judges. Over and over again, you, you find this, this cycle repeating itself in, in the book of Judges. The people forget God. And when the people forget God, God sends like He said He would. He sends the enemy. He sends affliction to them. Then they go into affliction, and in their affliction, they remember the Lord and they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord in His covenant mercy and grace sends a deliverer, a judge. And, and here in, in Judges, though, what we find is that this, this cycle keeps repeating. The people then forget again. And as the cycle repeats, it, it, get, it really goes from bad to worse. It's a downward spiral. It's, it's a downward cycle. So by the time you get to the last verse of the book of Judges, you read, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the way we are. Whenever left to ourselves, we go down, down, down. Well, this is what we find when we come to Judges 13, verse 1. We're in one of these cycles. And the children of Israel, we read, did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. But there is this time in this cycle something noticeably absent. In, in this cycle, there, there is no crying out of the people unto God. There, there is no, certainly no confession of sin, but there's not even a crying out to God in their misery. Lord, we are in misery. Lord, we are in bondage. It, it, it's one thing for God's people to sin and to suffer because of their sin, but it's, it's another thing when a people become comfortable with sin and content in its consequences. When there's no crying out to God, then this is certainly a, a, a solemn place to be. Really, you have one of the, the saddest verses in all of Scripture. A couple chapters later, in Judges 15, verse 11, 
In Judges 15:11, Samson has come to the tribe of Judah, the, the lion-like tribe, and he comes to 3,000 of the men of Judah. And the men of Judah say to him, Knowest, knowest thou not, Judges 15 verse 11, knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? They are frustrated and annoyed with Samson. Why? Here is the man that is beginning to deliver the people of Israel out of the bondage of the Philistines. And yet, the people of God, the church of God, you can say, are frustrated and annoyed with Samson. He is the one who's beginning a reformation. He is the one who is beginning, as it were, a a, a revival of religion, a calling the people to return, a calling the people to repentance, and yet they are frustrated with Samson. Surely, this is a backslidden church. Those who are frustrated at, any, at anyone who is calling them to repentance, calling them to reformation, and they see them as the troublemakers. These are people who have forgotten God. These are people who don't fear God. They are not conscious of God. They have forgotten that the Lord is the ruler, that the Lord is the judge. They've forgotten His law. They've forgotten that He is the one who redeemed them out of Israel. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And here the people of Judah, the strong men of Judah, are saying, don't you know that the Philistines are our rulers? They're the ones who tell us what to do. They're the ones we listen to. They're the ones that we submit to. You don't fight them. You don't cross them. You don't upset them. You, 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 you bow before them. You do what they say. At least you, you don't trouble them. It's the same today. It's the same today. In many ways, we could people would say and people could say, don't you know that the government are rulers over us? What they say, you might not like it, but you do what they say. They are our rulers, and that is true at one level. But who is the, but, but who is the, the ruler of the nations? Our, our Lord and our God. You think of social media too, the way in which the, the Philistine-like culture is is permeating and seeking to penetrate our young people with its agenda, with with its education, with its flags, with its way of saying, this is the way you need to think. This is is the way you are to, to act. These are worrying times. The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. But what about ourselves? We live in worrying times, but but what kind of a cycle are we in? Are we crying out to God? 
Are we crying out saying, Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, it is time for thee to work, for men have made void thy law. Or are we content to settle down and not, as it were, rock the boat? Are we crying out to God? Do we, do we not only recognize but, but speak and promote the absolute lordship of King Jesus? We need to be speaking to the, the people, to the culture, as it were, to the government, yes, and saying, be wise, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way. So, worrying times. But in these worrying times, secondly, we have this warrior child. It's in these times that Samson is born. And in the birth of Samson, we, we see God, we see God taking the initiative to deliver his people. That they are not crying to him. And yet he, in his covenant faithfulness and mercy, is answering their need. And what is so clear from this passage is that this is entirely a work of grace. This is entirely the one-sided work of the covenant God of Israel. That comes out in verse 2 when we read about Manoah's wife, that she was barren and bare not. And then the angel of the Lord in the next verse, verse 3, comes to the woman and says, Behold now thou art barren and bearest not. And you know, you might think this, this sounds insensitive. But, but what the Lord is doing here is what He does in His gospel. He is impressing upon us our need. He, he is, as it were, wakening, wakening us up to a sense of our need. This is the use of the law. This is your condition. This is who you are. You are barren and you bear not. And in many ways, this barrenness of Manoah's wife is a picture of, of the spiritual barrenness of, of the age in which they were living. You, you are barren and you are not bearing. And, and what a picture that is indeed of spiritual barrenness when we forsake God, when we go our own way, when we rely on our own strength. No no fruit unto holiness. And yet here is the Lord coming, coming in His grace, coming in His mercy. And from out of our complete helplessness and barrenness, and yes, silence, the Lord will bring salvation. Verse 3, Behold, now thou art barren and bearest not, but, but God, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. And verses 4 and 5 then tell us what the child will be like and what the child will do. Verse 5 in the middle, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb 
and he will begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. This child who will be born, we are told, will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. Now, how will he do that? How will he deliver the, the, the Israelites from the strong, oppressive Philistines that are reigning and ruling in the land? Will he be a military genius? Will he be a clever diplomat? Will he command a great army? Will he have great political skill and negotiation? No. This man, this child born, will have no great army at his disposal. In fact, one of the remarkable features about this child who will deliver is that he will fight alone. He will fight alone. Every battle he fights, he fights alone. And don't you see, my dear friends, the type, the picture of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? The one who, as he says in Isaiah 63, I tread the winepress alone, and of all the people there was none to help me. He says in Psalm 143, I looked on my right hand and viewed, but none to know me where. He's fighting alone. This is, this is his, he's doing it with his own strength. Yes, he can call 12 legions of angels, but he refuses that in the heat of the greatest battle that he fights. Christ fights alone. His right hand, his holy arm gets him the victory. Samson where does his strength come from? It's not natural strength. It's not, young people, his large muscles. It is not his own natural strength. Sometimes you, you see these pictures of Samson as this sort of gigantic man with these, these great muscles. That's not, the, that's not the strength of Samson. When Samson lost his hair, it says he was weak like any other man. That's not Samson's strength. The Bible speaks nothing about that. And that's so often our mistake, isn't it? We want to see natural strength. We, we want to have something of ourselves in which we can boast. Something of who we are and what we are like and our own power and our own strength and our own skill and we would take the glory that belongs to the Lord and give it to man. But the strength of Samson, the strength of any child of God, the strength of any church comes from the Holy Spirit of God. It is not by might, it is not by power, but it is by my spirit, saith the Lord. And again, see the picture of the glorious greater than Samson, where was his strength? It was not outward strength by which he overcame the enemy. Paul says he was crucified in weakness. He says, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to the roof of, roof of my mouth. It wasn't outward strength. And it wasn't outward beauty that attracted sinners to him. 
His visage was more marred than any man and is far more than the sons of men. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's not the beauty of Christ, my friend. And it's not the strength of Christ. It's not the outward. Where did Samson's strength come from? Verse 5 in the middle tells us, the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he will begin to deliver. There's his strength. There's the power. There's what will overcome the enemy. He will be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. Nazir is the verb to separate in Hebrew. A Nazarite is one who is separated. Here is one who is separated, completely, completely separated unto the work of God. And, he's from, and it's from the womb, you notice. It's not Samson's choice. We're not suggesting this. It's not a job application, as it were. No, it's from the womb. It's the calling of God upon him before he was born. Samson is set apart for this special work. Well, we don't have time to elaborate on this at length, but we, we need to just notice what, what, what the Nazarite is. And you can read this yourself in Numbers chapter 6, but there were three marks of the, the Nazarite in Numbers 6. The first is that the Nazarite is to drink no wine. Indeed, he's to drink or eat nothing that comes from the, the vine at all, no raisin. And, and what's the significance of that? Well, I, I think the answer is that, that wine, wine is what you drink uh, after you work when you're in a time of rest. Wine belongs to the rest that is after labor. And so, in the wilderness, in the, the 40 years, there's no, there's no wine. But what do they bring from the land of Canaan, the spies? They bring grapes from the land of Canaan, the, the land of rest. The, uh, wine is what comes when there's rest after work. Uh, in the Old Testament worship, there, no wine is brought into the sanctuary. But remember what Christ does when he comes and says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and now I will give you rest. He comes in his, uh, and he turns the water into wine in the marriage, and he, he comes with wine in the Lord's Supper. The, the, it's saying, it's teaching the work of Christ is finished. The gospel is, is coming with a finished work. Uh, there's rest for weary souls in Christ. Well, the Nazarite then, when he doesn't take any wine, he's, he is saying, I am still involved in a difficult work. I, I, I am still in service to God. And then his hair, the second mark of the Nazarite was, just by the way, it's not Nazarene, that's a completely different word. It, it's the Nazarite. And the, the second uh, mark of the Nazarite was that his hair was to remain uncut. And this, this would become a visible sign of, of the unbroken strength of the one who is in, 
consecration to God, the unbroken strength of the one who is consecrated to God, the one who has the spirit of God. He would stand out, Samson, as being different. In chapter 16, Samson, it tells us, had seven locks of hair, the number of perfection. Total consecration is the idea. And, and, and that, that seven locks of hair is telling the people that the strength is in God alone. Interestingly, in number six, the, the Nazarite, after he finishes his work, when his work is done, the hair is cut. And the hair goes into one of the offerings. Uh, it's as though it's saying, all, all that I had was from God. All the strength I had was from God. It was all His grace from beginning to end. It was not my natural strength at all. But so the, the Nazarite, anyway, he, he, he was not to drink any wine. He was not to cut his hair. And thirdly, he was not to touch a dead body. He was to be holy. and You're ceremonially unclean if you touch a dead body. But interestingly, that mark of the Nazarite is, is, uh, is missing with Samson. And, and the reason, I think, is obvious that the, the work that the Lord has Samson to do involves fighting and destroying the enemy. And again, what a picture of Christ. The, Moses says, the Lord is a man of war. David says he's mighty in battles. Psalm 45 says of Christ, that his arrows are sharp in the heart of the enemies of the king. So Samson is born then as this warrior child, but, but this is teaching us that the strength needed for battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil comes entirely from the Holy Spirit of God, from consecration away from the idols and total consecration to God. So in the birth of this warrior child, we see the Lord as the mighty one coming to deliver his people. These are worrying times, but here is the Lord in his grace coming to deliver his people. And thirdly here, we see wise parents. Now what an encouragement this is. In worrying times, to see wise parents. It, it tells you God is still at work. And, and Manoah's wife, yes, she's barren, and no doubt that was a source of great sorrow and much prayer. Perhaps like Hannah, she felt forsaken. And it is interesting that the two Nazarites from the womb in the Old Testament uh, both have barren mothers. The, the other one is Samuel from, from Hannah. Samson and Samuel, the two Nazarites from the womb in the Old Testament. For Samuel 1.11, Hannah vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look upon the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. But, but why are they barren? Why does the Scripture emphasize the barrenness? 
to show, surely to show, that the seed of the woman is the work of God and not of man. It's teaching that God is the one who is rising to deliver, that God is the one who's bringing life out of barrenness, that this does not come from the will of man or of the will or power of the flesh. And then you come to the New Testament and you find two more Nazarites from the womb. And both their mothers have a a kind of barrenness at least. The first is John the Baptist. And his mother Elizabeth, that's her name, from her which was called barren. And what was the, the purpose of it? To show that with God, nothing is impossible. John the Baptist is a Nazarite from the womb. And the other is the glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not outwardly, but inwardly. He is the true Nazarite. He is the one who is entirely devoted to God. He he is the one who is consecrated completely to God. He is the one who is without spot or wrinkle. And you see it most clearly in in Mary, the mother of our Lord. There is no place for man here at all. There can be no mistake here whatsoever. There is absolutely no place for man. And so Mary is a virgin. And, And from Adam to Seth, all the way down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, you have what we call ordinary generation, the father begetting the son. But at this point, it stops, it terminates, because the flesh can do nothing to bring the seed of the woman. The flesh can do nothing to bring the seed of the woman. But there There in the womb of the Virgin Mary, God intervenes to bring the seed of the woman. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the Almighty will overshadow thee. And that holy thing that shall be born of thee, that Nazarite unto God, that one entirely devoted to the service of God, that one who is Jehovah's servant, that one shall be called the Son of God. Now here we're bad in wives, but here we're good and godly wives who by God's grace also became good and godly mothers. So you see the wisdom here now with, with Manoah and his wife. They're wise parents here in these worrying times. You, you see their wisdom in, in their relationship to God. Manoah is a man of prayer, verse 8. He's entreating the Lord. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of respect. He entertains angels unawares, as Hebrews 13 says. Manoah, Manoah and his wife, they worship the Lord, verse 19, and they're careful in how they worship. They want to do exactly what the Lord has commanded them to do. And Manoah, he, he, he fears God. He sees the glory of God. He thinks he will die. That's what the Scriptures say. No man sees my face and lives. And then 
his wife in verse 4, the angel tells her not to drink strong drink, not to eat anything unclean. There's a lesson in this. In our relationship to God, parents, when we think of our children, firstly, firstly, we are to think of our relationship to God. Parents should live as they would have their children live. Consecration begins with the parents. So, but but these, these, this husband and wife are wise in their relationship to God. They're wise in their relationship to each other. Manoah's wife reports her interaction with the angel to her husband, and he believes her report. You think of what Proverbs 31, 11 says, the heart of her husband safely trusts in her. That's clear here. Uh, and Manoah, after his, he gets this report and he believes this report from his wife, he, he then wants to hear from the Lord himself. He, he's acting as the head of the home. He's not, t- he's not coming, taking a back seat, as it were. He's the head of the home. And he's going to lead the way in the training of this child. And the wife, you see her respecting and submitting to her husband. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord appears to her the second time, and she goes and tells her husband again. So there's wisdom in the relationship to God. There's wisdom in their the way they relate to one another. There's wisdom in their relationship to their children. Yes, to their unborn children. Verse 14. Or rather, by the end of verse 14, you have these, we could, these, we could say these prenatal instructions have been given three times. But do you see the prayer behind it in verse 8? Do you see how concerned Manoah is how to raise his child. Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come again unto us and listen, and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. He's not looking to the culture. He's not looking to Judah. He's not even looking to the professing church. He's saying, what does God want? What does the Bible say? What a pattern what a prayer for ourselves. What, will, what shall we do with our children? How shall we lead them? How shall the young direct their way? Let's go to the Lord with these prayers. And there's great encouragement here. When you think that here is the Lord coming, here is the Lord coming to deliver his people from the Philistines. And, he, and he's going to do it through Samson, but he comes to this godly home, to these wise parents. It begins in this godly home, and, and maybe mothers especially, you must, you must not listen. You must not buy into this godless, Philistine-like culture that tells you that the work you are doing in your homes is somehow second-rate. It is not. The angel came twice to Manoah's wife to speak about the child that would be born and the consecration of this child. Let's come lastly here and see this wonderful angel. Well, what a, what a picture, what a type of Christ is here. Samson was promised before his birth. So was the Lord Jesus. 
Unto us a child is born, Isaiah writes, hundreds of years before. Unto us a son is given, and the government is upon his shoulder. Samson was a Nazarite from the womb, and in the deepest sense, all that was true spiritually of the Nazarite, and in the Nazarite vow, the purity from sin, Christ was in his conception and in his birth. Samson fought, as we said, all the battles alone. And so the Lord Jesus Christ fights alone. Samson, though, he can only begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. But Christ, the greater than Samson, is the one who not only begins but ends. He is the author but he is also the finisher of the faith of his people. He is the Alpha, but he is also the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So the Spirit of God moved upon Samson from his youth, but the Spirit of God filled and rested upon the Savior without measure. Samson is a clear type of Christ. Samson pictures Christ. But do you see also in chapter 13, it is not just the pictures that we have. We have the angel of the Lord here himself. We can say literally in Judges 13, behold, a greater than Samson is here. We have here the mysterious yet glorious and yes, divine angel of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. It reminds us that the story about Samson is not actually firstly about Samson. It's about the Lord who is coming to deliver his people. And here this angel of the Lord in verse 20 receives worship. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve or worship. And here this angel of the Lord receives the worship that is offered to the Lord Jehovah. Manoah comes to the correct conclusion then at the end of verse 22. We have seen God. We have seen God. This angel of the Lord, do you realize, do you see? This angel of the Lord is none other but the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ himself. As the old writers used to say, trying on the clothes of his incarnation before the time. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form coming for the deliverance of his people. And how wonderful his name is. And how wonderful his work is. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. And the Prince of Peace. He is the one who comes to us in the gospel before we ever cry out to him. 
He is coming when we are silent, when we are saying the Philistines have rule over us. And he comes with this name, and the name in verse 18 is secret. It's the same word as the one in the next verse. He did wondrously from the same root word. Both are wonderful. His name is wonderful. And he does wondrously. It's the same thing. Why do you ask after my name, seeing it is secret? seeing it is wonderful. What's he saying? He's saying the name is beyond you to fully grasp. The name is beyond you. It's the same, same word as Psalm 139, 5 and 6. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. That's what the angel is saying here. The name is high. The name is glorious. The name is majestic. The name is not an ordinary name. This is a glorious name. Yes, this is the name of God himself. And then his work. What a wonderful work he does. Verse 19. This wonderful person does a wonderful work. Manoah prepares the sacrifice. And then we read the angel, the angel did wondrously. And we're told that Manoah and his wife at this point simply look on. They do nothing more. They don't offer the sacrifice. They simply look on at the sacrifice. The angel is the one who's doing everything. The angel is the one who is doing everything. And verse 20 says, it came to pass when the flame when the flame went up, from he- went up toward heaven from off the altar, that the angel of the Lord went into it. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. Oh, how wondrous. The angel of the Lord going into the fire. The angel of the Lord, the glorious, wonderful, majestic person going into the fire. The fire that God kindles the fire that speaks of God as a consuming fire of His holy wrath against sin. The fire that consumes the sacrifice to ash. The sacrifice that Manoah and his wife look on and would say, that's what I deserve. That's the wages of sin. That's what every sin deserves. That's what I deserve. And all they do is look on. Not a, t- not a lick of that flame touches them. Christ, the child born, the son given, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. What, my dear friend, is more wonderful than this? That he, the one before whom the angels veil their face, and say, holy, 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 wonderful one, that he would go into the fire, that he would go to the place that we deserve, that he would ascend so willingly, so lovingly, offer it unto the Lord, he says, and he goes into the fire. Oh, do you see here, it's the Lord who's coming, not Samson, not human strength, but Samson. The Lord is coming to deliver his people.
conclude by simply by circling round again to notice a little more of the wisdom of Manoah's wife here. Manoah says, we will die, we've seen God. And what wisdom, what gospel wisdom the, his wife comes with. Why would the Lord kill us, he, she says, when he has given us such a marvelous promise? Why would he accept sacrifice? Why, if he were pleased, if the Lord were pleased to kill us, verse 23, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands. He would not have showed us all these things, nor would at this time have told us such things as these. My dear friend, if this is your objection to the gospel, that you're sitting in these pews and yet you say, but is the Lord for me? Will the Lord do this for a sinner like me? Why are you here? Why are you sitting in these pews? Why have you had a minister sent to you to preach the gospel? Why have you seen these things? Why do you have this gospel set before you if his desire was simply to mock you with it before casting you away? This is showing the desire of the Lord. It's showing the love of the Lord, showing the willingness of the Lord, showing the power of the Lord to save sinners. Why would he show you this? Why would you be sitting here this morning? Why would you have children, a Bible in your hands? The Lord is saying, this is the will of God, even your salvation. Well, the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. Amen. Let us pray. We thank Thee, O Wonderful One, for all that Thou hast done in the gospel of Thy grace. What a wonderful person Thou hast sent, O Father, into this world. And what a wonderful work He has done. We pray Thee, O Lord, that we would be taken up with Him that we would fix our eyes upon this glorious one, that we, like Manoah and his wife, would look on, and that we would look on with the eyes of faith as we see the angel of the Lord doing everything. Oh, may our hearts go out to him in worship, in love and adoration. We ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.